Welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. This is another episode of Queens of Crime at War, a series looking at what the best writers from the golden age of detective fiction did once that period came to an end with the start of the Second World War. Today we're focusing on a writer who didn't necessarily get described as a queen of crime during her lifetime, but who I think absolutely deserves the title now. She published dozens of detective novels during her career that were both popular and critically acclaimed, she created a memorable sleuth character, and she pushed the boundaries of the whodunit form in interesting ways. The years of the Second World War were pivotal for her subsequent literary success, and saw her rise through the ranks to join the elite group at the top of the genre that also included the likes of Agatha Christie and Dorothy L. Sayers. But just a few decades after the war ended, her books had gone out of print and it's only recently that she has been rediscovered and appreciated by a wide audience once more. I'm talking, of course, about ECR Lorick. The Queens of Crime at War series, and this podcast in general, is only possible because of the listeners who join the She Done It book club. That's the membership scheme that supports the show, and which over the years has become a really delightful community of detective fiction fans who enjoy reading and discussing books and films together. Without those members, I would not still be able to make this show, and I have to keep encouraging new people to join so as to keep the podcast's funding at a steady rate as costs rise. And so, for the rest of the year, I'm running the She Done It pledge drive with the aim of adding 100 new members by the end of 2021. Here's a quick rundown of the benefits you'll get if you join the club today. You get each episode of the podcast early and without advertising. You get access to the monthly book discussion, in which we read and talk about a golden age novel of the club's choice. You'll get to join the monthly watching party, where we watch a whodunit-related film or TV episode together. You get two bonus episodes of the podcast a month, one about the book that we're reading, and another going into more detail on one of the topics that I've covered on the show. You get discounts on She Done It merchandise and live shows. You'll get to listen to three exclusive audiobooks that I've made for members from my favourite Victorian mystery short stories. And best of all, I've got an exclusive offer just for the 2021 pledge drive, where new and existing members each get a free gift membership to give away to a friend. That means that if you team up with a fellow She Done It fan, you can both effectively join for half the usual annual fee. That offer is only available during the pledge drive though, so once we hit 100 new members it will no longer be available. If you'd like to take advantage, make sure you do so quickly. Head to shedoneitshow.com slash pledge drive or click the link in the episode description to do that now. Now let's get on with the episode. ECR Lorick was the pen name of Edith Caroline Rivet, known to her friends as Carol. She used her real initials and reversed her nickname to create her pseudonym, under which she published her first detective novel in 1931, The Murder on the Burrows. This was a story inspired by a popular family holiday destination for the Rivets, Bideford Bay Holiday Park in Devon and it opens with a body discovered in a car found abandoned on the burrows, or dunes, there. 
published at the height of the whodunit's popularity in the middle of the golden age of detective fiction, it fared well enough that Lorick's publisher was keen for more of her work. And she began to write at a very rapid rate, publishing nine novels altogether between 1931 and 1935. And importantly both for her career and our story today, she seemed to get better with every book. I think the 1930s saw Laura rising through the ranks, if you like, as a crime writer. She began by being published by Samson Lowe, which was a publisher who, I think it's fair to say, didn't rank in the top echelon. And she wrote quite a few books published by Samson Lowe, but she was taken up by Collins Crime Club in the mid-30s. And I think that that is a good illustration of the growing esteem in which she was held. This is Martin Edwards, who will be a familiar voice to those of you who listened to the first episode in this series. He's a crime writer himself, a noted historian of the genre, and perhaps most importantly for today, a long-time reader and fan of E.C.R. Lorrocks, who has been instrumental in bringing some of her books back into print. As he says, her switch in publisher was a major step up for Lorrock, and a very good sign that she was expected to keep finding new readers as the years went by. Collins Crime Club, of course, was enormously successful imprint. I think over 2,000 books in the end over the years were, were published. And of course, not all of them were masterpieces. But in general, it's fair to say that many of the authors published by Collins Crime Club were at the upper end of the scale in terms of reputation and popularity. Christie, of course, being right at the pinnacle. And I think that that is bound to have done a good in terms of reputation and sales. I think even a crime writer today would be thrilled to be taken on by the same publisher that puts out Agatha Christie's books. And I'm sure that effect was just as powerful in the mid-1930s, when Christie was, arguably, at the peak of her powers. Lorrock's first book with Collins was Crime Counter Crime in 1936 which is a fascinating mystery set in the world of pre-World War II politics. And she was to stay with them for the rest of her career as a mainstay of their list. And Lorick received a couple of other boosts in the mid-1930s that helped her connect with her fellow detective novelists. She was reviewed positively by Dorothy L. Sayers in the Sunday Times in the mid-30s, and I think that that probably helped Sayers. Although she only reviewed for just over two years, was very, very influential as a commentator on the genre. Who wouldn't want a good review from that most expert and forthright critic of crime fiction, Dorothy L. Sayers? Sayers was very keen on a book called The Organ Speaks, a very rare book, which I I was fortunate enough to read. I have to say that personally, I was a bit disappointed. I'll give it another try and see if I feel better about it at a later date. But that one, I thought, dragged a bit for me. But Sayers greatly admired it. And I I think one or two other reviewers did as well. So it may be that their judgments are fairer than mine. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that this notice for her 1935 novel will have smoothed Lorick's path to a bigger publisher and more readers. After that, she received what some would say was the ultimate accolade for a crime writer at this time. And then she was elected to membership of the Detection Club, again, I think, a sign in general of the growing esteem in which she was held. Lorick was part of the Detection Club's 1937 intake, alongside Nicholas Blake, a.k.a. Cecil Day-Lewis, Christopher Bush and Newton Gale, 
which was the joint pen name of the American duo of Moona Lee and Morris Guinness. Because of the oncoming war, this was actually the last batch of initiations that the club did until 1946, when it came back together in peacetime once more. From all of this, we can form a pretty clear picture of ECR Lorick's literary fortunes in the 1930s. She was absolutely on the up. So I think that her story during the 1930s is one of climbing the ladder carefully, quite painstakingly perhaps, but definitely there's a move up in terms of reputation. And also, of course, as you keep writing, you develop your skills. And I think we see this in the in the Laura books. I do think that her very first book, Murder on the Burrows, is a really good debut. But in general terms, the books that she wrote in the later part of the 30s, I think, were generally stronger than the early ones. And it's a sign of increasing confidence. As you write, you feel that you can achieve things that that maybe you're uncertain about at an early stage in your career. Her books just kept getting better, as Martin says. And that was fortunate, because what she was going to do next would have tested any writer's skills. ECR Lorick's books up until the outbreak of the war are fairly typical for a crime writer of the time. She created a Scotland Yard detective, Inspector MacDonald, who she put into each plot, and she varied her locations and style according to the inspiration of the moment. As the consultant to the British Library Crime Classics series, which has republished quite a few of Lorick's books over the last few years, Martin has done his best to acquaint himself with as much of her work as possible. These are his picks from what we might call Lorick's early period. Well, there's a book that has featured recently in the British Library series called These Names Make Clues, which I think is uh, a very entertaining one. It may be as close as she came to writing a Christie type whodunit. I also think that's in the Belfry. A slightly earlier book is a good one, very atmospheric London setting. And I think that you see that there's a growing confidence. She tries different things, different approaches to narrative in the book. She was, of course, very prolific. She wrote a considerable number of books, and not all of them inevitably were at the same level. Bats in the Belfry, which was first published in 1937, is also a favourite of mine. It's a grimy, gothic novel that both gestures back towards the early work of writers like John Dixon Carr and even Edgar Allan Poe, while also containing a contemporary puzzle worthy of a new Detection Club member. Lorick's version of London feels authentically of its time, too, with some of the slightly less central areas still retaining more of an insular village feel. And the belfry of the title is really just very creepy in a way that makes for satisfying reading. These Names Make Clues, published the same year, also feels very of its moment, although perhaps in some aspects it harks back to the 1920s. The mystery is built around a treasure hunt, which had been a staple of the so-called puzzle craze after the First World War, and there's some fun code-breaking elements as well. Chief Inspector MacDonald isn't a wildly charismatic presence like Hercule Poirot, but he is a solid, wry and interesting detective. I'd say he has more in common with Niall Marsh's Roderick Allen than any of the other major Golden Age sleuths, and Lorick is understated in the way that she uses him. 
MacDonald is clever but also circumspect, capable of forming theories but willing to wait until they are properly proven to make his final move. In one sense, she slightly anticipates the coming popularity of the police procedural, and it certainly can be very satisfying to read about MacDonald and his colleagues putting in the legwork to build a case. And there'll be more on that after the break. In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II. This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well-known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. The brand new second series of History's Secret Heroes is out now, and it's absolutely full of brilliant episodes that had me gripped from start to finish. In it, we learn how a single woman, Christine Granville, skied into occupied Poland and gathered essential intelligence for the Allies, which changed the course of the war. We also look at how Raymond Gurem used his circus skills to break in and out of a Nazi internment camp to sneak in food and supplies for his family, and how a young Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of World War II. I'm especially drawn to stories about code-breaking, as I love puzzles, and to me it often feels like the real-life counterpart to solving a mystery. I loved the episode called The Unbreakable Navajo Code, about a group of Native American soldiers who devised a code for the Allies' use, and I also really enjoyed the one about Emily Anderson, an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. In the first episode of this series, I talked about how Agatha Christie spent her solitary years during World War II writing a frankly astonishing number of novels and stories that, with a couple of notable exceptions, don't directly address the reality of the war at all. In fact, it wasn't until I started thinking about it properly that I even realised that a book like The Body in the Library was written during World War II. On the surface, it feels like it could have come from any time in the preceding decade. E.C.R. Lorick, who was also pretty prolific in the early 1940s, went in a totally different direction. She was also publishing at least one novel a year during the war, but she chose to address it head-on, and even weave it prominently into the plots of some of her books, while in others it's there as a background presence. I asked Martin why it was that Lorick chose to write directly about the war, rather than serving up solely escapist stories, as other writers at the time did. I would guess, and it is only a guess, that it reflects that some writers like to address the situation that they're in right now. And others, if they find it unattractive, are very glad to escape from it. And certainly I'm in that latter camp, I must say, as a writer myself, that the escapism does appeal to me. But Lorak clearly took a different view. She was one of those, like the people who are writing about lockdown and pandemic already right now, she was one of those who addressed 
the nature of what was going on around her immediately. And that's, of course, very valuable now because we get this living social history. That's the fascinating thing about Lorak's World War II mysteries. You get to read about the realities of the war written as it was still happening, rather than with hindsight. Lorak didn't know how much of London would be destroyed by the Blitz, or whether Britain would be on the winning side in the end, when she wrote books like Checkmate to Murder and Murder by Matchlight. They can even feel a little jarring now, when we're so used to World War II period dramas that are created by people who never lived through that time. As ever with any kind of history, what felt very pressing and urgent in the moment isn't necessarily what emerges as the most prominent feature of a situation once the dust has settled. This made Lorick's approach a risky one, but she did it anyway. For instance, if you're writing about a war and you don't know what the outcome of the war is going to be, then parts of what you write may date very quickly. And although they may be extremely interesting social history, in terms of lively novel reading, they may not always work quite so well. That's the risk that you run if you do the sort of thing that Lorite did in those books, like Checkmate to Murder and, and Murder by Matchlight is another one. But she clearly found it interesting, maybe therapeutic, I don't know, to write about what was going on around her, devastating though it was. In some of Lorick's wartime novels, like 1944's Fell Murder, the war is really a backdrop for the action. That is one of her rural mysteries set in the Loonsdale area of Lancashire, and concerns a farming family. The restrictions placed on agriculture at the time because of the conflict feature strongly, as does the difficulties that the war has given the police trying to investigate a crime in a scattered remote hamlet. But in other stories, the war is front and centre. These are whodunits that wouldn't work without the restrictions that the war imposed on people. 1945's Murder by Matchlight is an excellent example of this, with Lorick utilising the blackout rules to construct a creepy murder scenario in which the killing is glimpsed only for a second as a match is struck in the total darkness. The blackout also features in 1944's Checkmate to Murder, with it providing a plausible excuse for a suspect to walk outside at a crucial moment. That book contains another excellent example of what Martin was saying about the risks involved in being too contemporary in one's references. A key protagonist of Checkmate to Murder is a special constable, who discovers a body in an almost abandoned house while on patrol in a North London street. Now, when I first read this book, I didn't really know what a special constable was, so I had to do a bit of research and learn that they were volunteer police officers recruited to swell the ranks of the ordinary police when so many men were called up into the armed forces. They were unpaid and often retired men who had some background in other forms of policing, such as in the colonies or the military. Their duties officially extended to enforcing blackouts, assisting with evacuations and air raid marshalling, and any other strictly war-related business. Once I understood this, the tension that Lorick creates between her rather pompous special constable, the regular police officers, and the young soldier suspected of the crime, makes a lot more sense. Readers in 1944 would surely have recognised immediately that the special constable was exceeding his remit by getting involved with a murder investigation, and probably have found this bumptious character quite amusing. 
The confusion created by the war, which had caused a mass internal displacement of people as they were evacuated or called up for service, was both a frustration and a boon to the detective novelist. In a novel like the kind that Lorak was publishing in 1944 and 1945, it was no longer realistic for a detective to say, we'll just wire to this suspect's previous residence and find out all we need to know about him. Bombing was destroying records and households, and even if the paper trail still existed, finding someone with the time to follow it was tough. Families no longer automatically lived together, with children evacuated and adults posted to different places, according to the dictates of the various services. Lodging houses, such as the one in Murder by Matchlight, where everybody lives in close quarters but can't really verify anything about their neighbours, became very common. As an officer says at one point in Checkmate to Murder about the difficulties of tracking anybody down in all of this confusion, after a lot of trouble, we shall trace him to three or four other places and then find he came back to London one night and got his ticket in a raid. The war created more work to do, with fewer resources for the wartime detective. Another interesting point comes from the trauma that everyone who lived through the war suffered. Detective novelists have always had to work hard to create plausible uncertainty around things like when a shot was heard, so that the pool of suspects can be kept large and the reader nicely confused about who actually had the opportunity to commit the crime. Lorick does this in Checkmate to Murder, simply by having one character suggest that it's no surprise that nobody at an evening gathering in an artist's studio can be sure if they heard a shot or not, and if they did, at what time. Londoners have heard so many bangs during their recent history that a pistol shot isn't so impressive a row as it used to be, he says. When it was quite normal to wake up and find that a street you had walked down the day before had been reduced to a heap of rubble, it's not that surprising that a few little bangs will be put down to the general noise and fuss of the war effort, rather than a murder attempt. Lorick herself moved around a few times during the war. Well, at the start of the Second World War, she was still in London, right, where she'd lived, and which, of course, is a setting of, of quite a number of her books in the 1930s. So The Organ Speaks, for instance, is, is set in central London, Murder in St John's Wood, Murder in Chelsea. And, and so on, two more very rare books. And she was evacuated to North Devon. There is a letter that's been around on the internet, being sold for a fabulous sum, in which she talks about the horror of the war, the sickening insanity of the war. And then at some point, I'm not sure precisely when, but I think it was before 1944, she moves up to Afton in the northwest of England, Loonsdale. That letter was written in November 1940, after a friend of Lorick's was killed while firefighting in London. Most of my other friends have been bombed or burned out of their homes. What a sickening insanity it all is, she said. It is perhaps hard to understand why you would want to spend even more time thinking about the everyday horrors of it. Christie's approach of offering both herself and her readers some escapism starts to feel quite natural. But for Lorick, and for some other writers like John Rode and the Nap Lombard duo, writing about the war was cathartic, a way of controlling and taming the fear. You can probably see that there's an element of therapy, both for the authors and for the readers, in that escapist piece of fiction, but with a wartime setting. 
ECR Lorrock saw out the war with her sister and brother in Lancashire, and then based herself there permanently. She clearly loved London, and wrote some very evocative prose about the city at its worst moments during the war. But she never went back full-time. Loonsdale had captured her heart. She liked the village, she liked the area, and she, having moved there, settled there, and not only made her home, but became quite a prominent and, and certainly a popular figure in the local community. So she moved there during the war and, and remained there until she died. It is a beautiful part of the world. When I was shown round there, quite astonishingly, by coincidence, we bumped into someone who owns the house, which is the setting for one of the Lorac novels. So that was a, a real bonus uh, and a bit of fun. And it just shows how, how much of an impression she made that, that people remember it. Lorac continued to publish a crime novel a year, sometimes two after the war until her death in 1959. And then perhaps because of their intense timeliness, or through some other quirk of fate, her books went out of print and were virtually unobtainable for decades, until the last few years, when the British Library started regularly republishing them. They're very much worth reading, and I think entirely justify Lorak having the title of Queen of Crime. And of course, her wartime mysteries are the best of all. This episode of She Done It was written and narrated by me, Caroline Crampton. You can find out more about the podcast and everything it covers at shedoneitshow.com, where there are also transcripts of every episode. She Done It is edited by Ewan McAleese. Production assistance from Leandra Griffith. Member support for the She Done It book club from Connor McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with a new episode. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.